Well, hello everyone and welcome to this in our pop series of podcasts about changes to the UK data protection rules and in particular the UK GDPR. Today I'm joined by Francis Rollin in our employment, pensions and immigration team to talk about the recent developments from an employment and immigration perspective. Welcome Francis. Thanks for inviting me Beverly. You're very welcome. So we're five years on from GDPR. We've had many developments in the approach to documentation, guidance on the regulators and data subjects, including employees become probably, it's fair to say, more au fait with exercising their rights. Does anything in particular stand out from an employment perspective? Well, you're right, Beverly. It certainly has been a period of change, um, what with Brexit, the COVID pandemic, and now the potential introduction of the Data Protection Bill. It's yet another piece of draft UK legislation that affects employers. There does seem to be quite a lot of this at the moment, and employers, as, as usual, have been kept on their toes and having to keep up to date with um, privacy notices and data protection policies, for example. Yes. Um, Shall we start then with the easy one, maybe Brexit? Anything in light of Brexit in the context of UK GDPR you'd care to flag for our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I think this is something we discussed um, way back, Beverly. Once the UK had um, left the EU following Brexit, we effectively became a third party country. And that means that transfers of personal data outside the UK are an international transfer. So that has an impact on internal staff privacy notices, external privacy notices, applicant privacy notices. They all require updating in light of this. And also, it's a good time um, to reconsider the safeguards in place and the legal legal basis or legal bases um, for which you're transferring data abroad. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're doing a lot of that at the moment. And, and it, um, you can always tell a, a privacy notice that's out of date just by what it says on international transfers. Um, as well as um, documenting international transfers, um, how about Article 30 records of processing? This too would presumably need to be updated in light of Brexit. So um, companies now also have to consider updating their Article 30 register, also considering an appointment of an EU representative, which for those who are listening is, of course, different to a data protection officer and will also be slightly different to what they're proposing under the um, draft bill. Uh, Also, you'll have to state this in privacy notices post-Brexit. So really is quite a lot of change there. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a good time to revisit any transfers of data abroad. Um, And in particular, intra-group transfers of employee personal data. Yes, I agree there. It's important to bear in mind that the GDPR looks at each group company separately. So if we are making intra-group transfers of employee personal data, uh, there really should be an intra-group transfer agreement dealing with two different aspects. One, documenting on what basis the companies are processing the data. Is it a controller-to-controller relationship? Is it a controller-to-processor relationship? Or a joint controller even? And also, there must be the adequate safeguards in place for the transfer of the personal data outside the UK. For example, um, you may put in place the EU model standard clauses if it's a transfer from the EU, but you would also have to add in the UK addendum in those circumstances 
or alternatively you might choose to use the UK international data transfer agreement so lots of decisions to be made and you know relatively complex I would say. Absolutely and that probably the most straightforward bit of it is just making sure that your privacy notice sets out the details of any intra-group transfers for example if you're a company that transfers employee personal data to your US parent company perhaps for the purposes of group bonuses, then the staff privacy notice should make this fact clear and the basis for the transfer should be specified. Um, this is particularly important where it comes to sensitive personal data, which we now call special category data, for example, immigration details. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, turning to other documentation, is there any kind of trend we're starting to see in the context of the employment arena, Francis? We're certainly seeing um, a greater use of the um, data protection impact assessment. Uh, under UK GDPR, uh, we call them DPIAs, uh, must be carried out when the processing of personal data is likely to result in high risk to the rights and freedoms of natural persons. However, the ICO guidance confirms that it's good practice to undertake a DPIA for any major project involving the use of personal data. We're seeing DPIAs frequently when it comes to employee monitoring, for example, and also with the sort of um, rise of AI in the workplace, that's likely to trigger the requirement to carry a DPIA in many contexts. Something we've been considering again recently is that snappily named appropriate policy document. Oh, yes. Doesn't it just roll off the tongue? Absolutely. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with this, but it's required in most circumstances when processing special category data or criminal offence data for employment purposes and also for other in other particular circumstances. It seems um, another tedious box ticking exercise, but it does actually help focus the mind on how and why you process these more sensitive kinds of data, how you store them and how you erase them. Um, another more general point that's frequently missed, I see this all the time, is that employers should be checking their privacy notices and updating them whenever they make changes to the way they process things. So I know that we made changes during the COVID pandemic to our privacy notices about shielding and the coronavirus job retention scheme. All those things have come out now, but other changes such as new IT systems, new CCTV, different kind of monitoring, outsourcing of HR, for example, office ID um, entry cards, um, agile working death checking. These all need to be recorded in the staff privacy notice. Um, and I just noticed today, actually, um, in our internal privacy notice, it still refers to Twitter. Um, so just very simple things like that should be changes like that need to be reflected um, in your privacy notice. Um, another point uh, to make, sorry, Beverly, to okay. keep, keep going on. Um, but another point that comes up frequently is we're seeing privacy notices don't deal with um, immigration and sponsorship data. And this is a critical area where special category data and sometimes even criminal offence data may be involved. 
Um, in addition, there have been recent changes to right to work checks. So very briefly, for non-UK nationals, there's a home office portal check. And for the purpose of checking British and Irish nationals, there are now things called identity service providers. So there'll be external sources of data, such as these identity service providers, external recipients of the this kind of data, such as the Home Office, and all these need to be reflected in the staff privacy notice. Of course, yes. other, other data protection issues do arise from immigration-related data, not just privacy notices, so all of that has to be considered. Yes, so if I was summarising, Francis, updating the Article 30 record of processing, updating the privacy notice, considering more DPIAs and have you got an appropriate policy document in place, as well as transfers abroad. Those to me are the kind of basic five things coming out of out of it so far. Um, I just want to touch also on something else, um, data subjects rights. I mean, that's also relevant to employers. Um, I think it's fair to say that data subjects have a fair number of rights, the right to object to processing, the right to portability of data, the right to rectification, the well-known data subjects access request, DSAR. Um, what's the EPI team's experience been of these since UK GDPR? I think one of the things we've noticed is that most staff don't know how to recognise when these rights have been exercised. There's sometimes they're not clearly identified and won't necessarily be in writing. So it's good practice, um, we would say, for employers to train their staff on how to actually recognise when these rights are being exercised. Um, clearly, the one we see most frequently in employment is the data subject access request. Um, these have been a key element of the protections set out in data protection law in the UK since 1984. So um, I think we're all pretty familiar with them by now. But on the 24th of May this year, the ICO published guidance on subject access requests for employers. So there's question and answers alongside a blog. And although it's not directly relevant anymore to the UK, we also now have the European Data Protection Board guidelines on handling uh, data subject access requests. And we are aware of changes afoot in Europe that suggests when responding, um, more details are going to be required of third parties to which personal data has been shared. Understood. And that's where the records of processing may become more helpful. Um, because, of course, if we have a full record of processing, it will help us respond in more detail to data subject access requests if that requirement does follow through. Mm -hmm. Just on to the thorny issue of monetary penalties, fines and compensation claims. Any thoughts on those since GDPR was introduced? Um, just to echo Tom's thoughts on this in the podcast we did on compensation and fines, we're seeming to take a harder line taken, we're seeing a harder line being taken against claims compensation relating to distress by data subjects, including employees. So on, on this fines point, um, I don't think we can omit to mention the Morrison's case. Oh, yes. Um, and yeah, the, in, the issue of employer vicarious liability. Um, it's generally assumed that a controller of data is vicariously liable for any breaches of personal data law carried out by his or her employ employee. Um, in the Morrison's case, uh, 
people may have seen this at the time. It was a disgruntled employee who took a load of his employer's detailed payroll data of lots of employees, downloaded them at home and then released them on the internet through software where he tried to disguise his identity and frame another person. There are about 10,000 employees that were affected by this, and they alleged that they'd suffered distress as a result of the employee's online disclosure of their data, and that Morrisons were liable for damages for that distress, either directly or, um, or by way of vicarious liability. Morrisons itself, to be clear, um, hadn't committed any breach of uh, data protection law. The Supreme Court, much to Morrison's relief, I'm sure, held that they weren't vicariously liability for their employer's actions because he'd been acting, as they said, on a frolic of his own when he was seeking revenge against Morrison's. And therefore, Morrison's wasn't liable to pay compensation to its employees. Of course, that is a relief. Um, to all employee controllers, because Morrison's potential liability could have been enormous, even though it may have been small per employee, because it was 10,000 of them. Yes, and I don't think we can complete any employer-related podcast without the mention of data breaches. Um, Any thoughts from your experience to date? Well, I think it's probably fair to say that data breaches come in all shapes and sizes. ransomware to the classic of missent emails. We now have the useful um, EDPD, which I've temporarily forgotten what that what that refers to. It's the European Data Protection Board. Correct. Isn't it, well done. Well um, done. There's, there's plenty of acronyms in GDPR. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we now have the EDPD guides on reporting and assessing data breaches. And given there's such a tight deadline for reporting them to the ICO or other supervisory body, that's just 72 hours from becoming aware of them. Having a what to do in the event of a data breach in the employee data protection policy is really helpful. And actually training your employees employees on it and making sure everybody knows about it. It's going to be key to demonstrate to the ICO that you have trained relevant employees on the UG on the UK GDPR when you are reporting a data breach? Yes, in fact, um, when I'm completing those, you have to confirm that the relevant individual has been trained within the last two years. So um, it's really good to have an ongoing rolling uh, training programme. So, Francis, thank you for all of that. It's a really good overview of the UK GDPR five years on. And if I were to summarise, and correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, The key takeaways would be revisit privacy notices in light of Brexit and other internal changes, Um, consider putting in place an appropriate policy document and also refreshing or undertaking DPIAs, data privacy impact assessments. Uh, Record intergroup transfers of personal data, ideally in an intergroup transfer agreement. And if you have one already in place, you'll probably need to update it in light of um, the SEC's Brexit. And um, I know that there's some listeners might be aware uh, that Privacy Shield is on its third uh, revisit now, but that doesn't always work in the context of transfers to the US. Uh, Revisit generally transfers of personal data outside the UK. 
be aware and train employees to recognise data subjects exercising their rights, not just DSAR, data subject access requests. Employee training is key and review your response to data breaches. Anything I've missed, Francis? No, I think that's that's spot on. Thanks, Beverly. Okay, well, it's almost time for GDPR health check five years on. Thank you for your time today, Francis. It's lovely to speak with you. And you, Beverly. Thanks. Take care. Thank you all for listening to our GDPR podcast. There are others in the series if you wish to link on the link above. Thanks for listening. Thank you.